The following podcast is brought to you by fantasy-animation.org, an online educational resource dedicated to fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. The site is run by Dr. Christopher Holliday and Dr. Alex Sargent from the Universities of Portsmouth and King's College London, and we invite contributions from the worlds of academia, fandom, uh, practitioners, animators and creatives alike to contribute to our weekly blog, which features a number of reviews, editorials and in-depth look at the world of fantasy and animation. You can find us all at fantasy-animation.org. This show is recorded in remote circumstances due to the ongoing situation, and please forgive any audio problems or blips you might hear. Otherwise, it's a cracking episode, so do enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And me, Alex Sargent. So for this latest lockdown instalment, we're excited to be talking about Martin Scorsese's 2011 film Hugo, set in 1930s Paris and which takes audiences through the special effects and spectacular stagecraft of pioneering filmmaker uh, Georges Méliès. Uh, now this is someone who really sits at the heart of fantasy animation for reasons that will hopefully become clear over the course of our discussions. Um, with my animation hat on, Méliès is obviously somebody who comes to mind as the designer of multiple trick effects that would anticipate forms of animation at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and Alex, for you, what does Méliès mean to, to fantasy? Well, he is he is the sort of um, primal cinematic fantasist. He is uh, the the person that that both sort of fantasy historians, those interested in the genre, and sort of film theorists more generally sort of turn to as the sort of almost sort of clumsy, cliched example of what cinematic fantasy can be and looks like. So yeah, he's the sort of prototypical father of both of our um, cinematic disciplines, Chris. Yeah, yeah. But um, So it's not just us, however, that's going to be talking through um, Méliès um, and obviously uh, The Pleasures of Hugo, I think, as a film about cinema or a movie about movies. Uh, in fact, we're joined this week by a returning guest, something we don't uh, get to say very often, uh, in Eric Smudin, who is Professor of American Studies and Cinema and Technocultural Studies at the University of California. Um, for those who need a refresher, he's published on Disney, he's published on Frank Capra, uh, and the many other elements of American film history. Uh, and hot off the press is his latest book, Paris in the Dark, which, and this is a quote, takes readers on a journey through the streets, cinemas, and theatres of Paris to sketch a comprehensive picture of French film culture during the 30s and 40s. Um, we spoke to Eric briefly uh, when we did a special uh, Society for Cinema Media Studies conference episode, but thankfully we've got Eric um, around for a little bit longer. So thank you for rejoining us. Thank, thank you so, so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it was a pleasure uh, for us to, to have you. Now, we're here to talk about uh, Scorsese's Hugo, I guess, um, as a film that both perhaps touches on your writing on animation and fantasy, but also your more recent ventures into the history of cine clubs, um, cinephilic subcultures, perhaps local exhibition practices of Paris for your recent book. Um, and obviously the film pr uh, presents a sort of fantasy version of Paris in the early 30s, which is exactly where your book starts. And yeah. so as a sort of starter for 10, um, I just wondered if you could perhaps talk a little bit about um, obviously the image of, of, of Hugo's Paris and perhaps the relationship that that has with the Paris that you sort of found as you began to research and engage with um, Paris in the dark. Sure, of course. You know, um, I first saw Hugo when it came out uh, originally nine or 10 years ago. And that was just as I was starting the project about what it was like to go to the movies in Paris at about this time. And 
I'm usually fairly tough on film to try to reconstruct a city. I grew up in Los Angeles and dozens of films, hundreds of films have tried to reconstruct Los Angeles as it looked in 1930, 1940, and often do a really bad job. So I'm always kind of skeptical of films that want to recreate a cityscape. And I think one of the things about Hugo is that it does such a great job of doing Paris. And the Paris it shows is only a fantasy one. I think uh, the Eiffel Tower is in every shot. So the film has this very specific touristy view of of Paris. But still, it's an incredibly loving view of a boy going through the streets and staying in the train station there. So in some ways, it's an absolute kind of stereotypical fantasy cliched views of what Paris is, the Eiffel Tower, the Arc de Triomphe, that kind of thing. In another, it's a really kind of a wonderful ground level view of Paris, and especially through the eyes of a young boy and and a young girl as they go through some of the spaces there. So I really saw it as a kind of a great view of what it was like there, even if it's not a real one. And I think... um, When I saw the film for the first time, I saw it with my daughter, who was probably seven or eight at the time. And uh, seeing Paris through her was also great. And I think that film gave her a sense of wanting to go. We took her there a few years later. And she kind of wanted to see the spaces in Paris that had been the spaces in Hugo. And so it was kind of a, a, a really great way of not only seeing the city through the boy's eyes in the film, but seeing it through my daughter's eyes at the same same time. It's a really interesting depiction of, of Paris. It, to even call it a depiction, I guess, raises questions because I, I think it's really charming. Yeah. I think one of the things that's charming about it is that it's so obviously not real. Um, and quite a yeah. lot of films sort of play with a romanticised or imagined version of a city. And usually, as you say, it's sort of um, the fantasy is is implicit. It's a sort of you know, it's a it's the, the camera adds a certain fantastical element to the organisation of space as it appears in real life. But this is this is overt in yeah. what it's doing. And I wonder if that does that. What does that? Does that that makes it kind of you know more lovable because it's more obvious. Um, but it also means the relationship with the real city is somewhat more confusing. In that you know, I I wouldn't expect to go to Paris to see the places in Hugo? Or did your daughter expect that when she um, saw it? No, I was really struck by the same thing. And I, seeing it again for the first time in nine or 10 years, I couldn't tell if it was was because of the state of CGI at that Mm. time or if it was what they meant. But what I like about the film is that the Paris we see is both incredibly reconstructed and also phony and, you know, not real at the same time. And you could always tell that it's not real. And uh, it's possible that was because of the technology that was available. But I think it's also part of the strategy of the film to reconstruct Paris lovingly and perfectly, but also have it be kind of false, kind of not real, kind of constructed like a movie set. And I sort of like the tension there. And I, I have a feeling that's what the people who made the film meant. So I think it's the interplay between yeah, that looks like, that's incredible. That looks like the Eiffel Tower and that looks like a cafe. Um, The interplay between that and the obvious constructedness and movie set-ness of it too, if that makes sense. I love that idea of of, of movie movie setness um, and the kind of yeah the 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 pleasure in the um, artificiality. I mean, I think I've got a couple of. I guess on the one hand, we've got 
that the film itself, I think, um, I think I've sort of slipped into to lectures where I've spoken about computer graphics and obviously the idea of the virtual backlot um, and the you know the the interesting pull between sort of new technology representing the old, but also the fact that the film itself is sort of on that note of artificiality is 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 riddled with and, and wrought with um, sort of image making forms or moving images that are that the pleasure is is in their sort of artificiality i mean perhaps most obviously is the um uh, automaton which is you know the, it's not it's it never it's not so hyper real that it tries to pass itself off as a real real human even though um hugo himself sort of want, wants that to be it's sort of an interesting reversal or tweak on a sort of pinocchio narrative because he wants he wants that to come alive so that he he's not alone um but but you know even within that I mean, I, I sort of lost um, track of all the different references to to sort of cinema both as the, in the set you know from images and photographs of Jean Gabin to flip books um, uh, and so there's obviously something and and actually it reminded me I was looking and reading a bit about the film there was obviously something going on in 2011 because you also have the artist and Midnight in Paris and so obviously something was was going on with regards to um, early the fascination with 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 sort of early cinema so i've got lots of i'm really excited to, to talk about it that hasn't become clear already because I've, i'm i'm really yeah i love movies that are about movies and it seems like yeah. this film this taps into that kind of cinematic culture that that you speak about in your book yeah i i think that's i think that's really true and i you know i haven't thought thought about the i haven't thought about midnight in paris coming out that year but the artist is is a good case study as well and that's a French film made very very much about the U.S. in some ways, but it's a sort of a Parisian view of Los Angeles or Hollywood or, or something. Uh, and of course, with Hugo, as you mentioned, it's full of references to other films. And one of the pleasures of the film is trying to spot those references and you feel very mm. smart. It's also maybe one of the things that can be bothersome about the film, like Scorsese is trying way too hard to put a scene from Potemkin and the train station or something. But so it, that's one. Of, so it's both one of the pleasures of the film and one of the irritations of the film that it's such a film lover's dream come true. Uh, and you mentioned the photo of Jean Gabin, which we just see for a second as the camera pans by the yeah. cafe. I think it is, and then James Joyce turns up, and yep. Django Reinhardt is in the film. So in a lot yeah. of ways, it's too much, and at the same time, it's perfect. And that's a kind of a tension that the film seems to walk through and sort of negotiate pretty well it seems to me yeah I, I mean I just I think obviously Melies is is the you know we're, we're talking about Hugo but we we, we can't uh, fail to, to talk about Melies and his place as we said at the start you know his relationship to, to sort of both fantasy and animation and given given where he sits with regards to uh, early cinema history and uh, if we have the Lumieres perhaps on the one you know this is a very sim simplistic division you know it's it's but it, you know it's the it's the relationship between actuality shorts and, and kind of trick effects and and it seems like obviously the artificiality of it you mentioned the yeah the constructiveness of it that the filmmakers are sort of going for um, it seems entirely appropriate given that Melies is on the side of those sorts of um you know, Phil. A lot of the dialogue is about his relationship to fantasy. Films have the power to capture dreams, world of imagination. Um, come and dream with me. It seems entirely appropriate that, um, given which side of the knife edge he fits with regards to, you have Lumiere's making these sort of actuality, um, quote unquote, on location shorts versus, you know, more something that perhaps leans towards Tom Gunning's cinema of attractions. It it feels like 
that the, the fakery of the film is is entirely appropriate to the to the lineage or genealogy in which in which Melies himself was working. No, I think so too. And in fact, um, a lot of the film looks like a Melies set in some ways, and I think that's where the artificial nature of the film works re- really well. And there are clips in the film of a lot of the Lumiere films. We see the workers leaving the factory, the train coming in. And so the film will sort of posit the documentary tradition of the Lumieres against the fantasy one of Melies. It's interesting, too. This is where, you know, I keep going back and forth on on the film. You can make a really interesting film about Melies' place in film history that was sort of de-romanticized this, too. I mean, he was in charge of a vast studio. And the fantasy films he made were only a small minority of the films he actually made, which were all kinds of genres. And he had a studio in... New Jersey, a studio in Texas. He was really an interesting entrepreneur in that early film period and didn't just make yeah. those fantasy films that he's so well known for now. So, you know, you could make a an interesting but much more boring film about Melies as kind of an entrepreneur, an early studio head uh, who was in charge of kind of a vast global empire of film and not just doing these kinds of fantasy films we sort of love now and you know revere him for now obviously when we were writing and thinking about the relationship between fantasy and animation Melies was a filmmaker that that sort of came up and, yeah. and, and each of us was trying to claim you know for me as I said um, you know it's, it's very difficult to, to not find histories of, of animation where that sort of begin with with Melies you know you can look at any Paul Wells's book Understanding Animation talks about the development of his trick effects and the sort of dissolve where the camera jams leading and this is a quote leads him to pioneer a whole number of other cinematic effects which would become intrinsic to the possibilities available to animators so he's very much a sort of central figure um, an origin point actually in, in lots of ways you know he was he's you have that kind of convergence, I think, in early animation between Melies as as a trick filmmaker and then a group of filmmakers that were working in kind of comic books like Winsor McCay and those two things come together and you get and you get early animated shorts. And yet I vividly remember having discussions with Alex as we were trying to draft the introduction to our fantasy animation book, where Alex was sort of talking about Melies as this kind of forefather of screen fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting then that you mentioned that he only really made a handful of of fantasy films and and and, that, and yet these are the ones that he's sort of i guess known for or or um well, maybe it's because of that relationship to animation that he made he made yeah, films. that's right you know he uh started a studio the star films and they made i would imagine thousands of films over a period of, of about 15 years or so and most of them were the kind of genre films that we associate with films from back then westerns dramas, that kind of thing. The ones that he was officially in charge of, of course, were the uh, fantasy films, A Trip to the Moon, that kind of thing. So he actually was, he was the one who made those films. I'm not sure how many of the other kinds of films he himself made. Uh, His brother was involved. It was kind of a vast empire of uh, filmmaking that then collapses around 1910 or 1915 or so. But there's no question that he is often seen as the father of a certain kind of film. And in fact, when I was doing research for, for, for my book about Paris, I was interested in seeing that in sort of the journalism of the period between 1915 and 1925 or so, he kind of just disappears. So the film is right in that respect. Where he is mentioned 
is when somebody will make a stop action film, like a Starevich will make a stop action film or something. Yeah. And then they'll say, this is a film that's indebted to the Melies tradition of films from A Trip to the Moon and that kind of, kind of thing. So he turns up, he turns up, when he does turn up in the early 1920s, it is as the father of that kind of animated film. Mm. Uh, so that's what he's known for e- even then and even as he's in this decline and is more or less forgotten. He will turn up now and then in newspapers, film journals, that kind of thing, as the father of a very specific kind of fantasy film. Yeah, and... Um... It's really fascinating to sort of know that I was wondering how much the sort of reception of Melies mapped onto the sort of, you know, the, the story in Hugo, because I mean, I'm aware of the end of Melies's career and there is some truth right to him working. Is it even like a, maybe it's a hypocritical story of him working in the train station as a sort of clockmaker? I think it's true. Yeah. I think that's true. I think he was there. Uh, I didn't mean to, to, hmm interrupt but yes he was found Guillermont Parnasse I think at a candy shop okay okay so so some fanciful but yeah and I, and I certainly knew that he sort of didn't end his life a, a wealthy man he sort of um his empire kind of collapsed on itself right and, and a lot of it was to do with like film piracy if I if I remember learning rightly there was just that it was just very easy to copy his movies so you know no one had to pay him for it I, I think that's right <clears throat> and um there are a whole bunch of things that went on. And of course, the film business back then, especially in France, was always precarious. And he also, I think, put his brother in charge of production in the U.S. And his brother was either a terrible businessman or a dishonest one. And it's hard to tell. <laughs> that had a lot to do with business de- declining. And as you said, too, it was very hard to keep films from being pi- pirated then. And so people were making knockoffs almost almost immediately. And probably he extended himself far too much without enough business know-how in terms of how to do that. And so he overstretched his capacity in some ways and probably wasn't as good a businessman as Pathé and some of the others at, at that time who were able to manage a global empire. And I guess what you've got, I mean, this is my knowledge of French cinema history is lacking here, but some broad, you know, um, histories I do know, like, you, and you've got the sort of 30s as the arrival of a certain kind of sort of uh, classicism, poetic realism, all this kind of stuff, where, whereby perhaps the taste of the era is not for the sort of more overt artificiality that Melies embody, um, embodies. So, so is that part of his downfall as well? I think that that's right. You know, and the film <clears throat> where the film kind of falls down is when Melies is telling the kids about why his career declines. And he says something about how men returning from World War One were in no mood to laugh at films. Mm. And that really has nothing to do with it, of course. <clears throat> and his career de- declines. It's not clear that tastes change, although that might be the case. And really, what's interesting about his films is that they're so sophisticated on one level, what he does within the shot hmm. and kind of unsophisticated on another level. He's not doing much <clears throat> from shot to shot. He's not doing much in terms of editing. His mise-en-scene is kind of flat. So his films are interesting to study because on the one hand, they're so much indebted to a theatrical tradition in Paris of being on stage and so much looking forward to 
what film can do as well. So it's possible the fantasy films we know him for now would seem fairly unsophisticated mm. later on. But I think mostly the career de declines in part because of the global film market being so difficult. The advent of World War I destroying the French film mm. industry generally, and probably just uh, he was in over his head in terms of business. That's not what he was cut, cut out for. Uh, but he does, I think the film is accurate in terms of he's then from 1950 or 1920 on or so, he's working in Montparnasse. He also owns a theater. He owns the th theater that Robert Houdin, the magician, had started. Uh, Meliers buys that and runs that through the early 1920s as well, and then it's torn, torn down. So he keeps his hand in... Uh, entertainment, but I think he is di he's discovered in the Guerre Montparnasse by a film historian um, in 1925. A guy named Georges uh, 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 George Michel Croissac is writing a history of cinema, the first thir 30 years of the history of cinema, and he wants to get all the founders in his book and ta talk about them, and so he tracks down Melies. And it's largely through the efforts of Quasac, whose book is published in 1925, that Melies is broadly rediscovered. So a film historian is the true hero of the story and not a couple of kids. <laughs> um, and that's perhaps why we like it so much. Um, but um, it, it's, better than, it's better than the critic being the bad guys, as they look at the theory. But I think, actually, we're talking a lot about film history. I think what, what occurs to me is that I'm interested in what the film's pleasure in, in terms of the relationship to all that history, because I mean, there's a dual register going on, and this was normally marketed at, at, at sort of a family audience, but um, I think it's quite widely publicised that most of it sort of appeals to a sort of certain, certainly did better critically than it did at the box office, and you can see why, and that it appeals to a certain, um, I guess, more mature, cinephilic um, sensibility. Um and is and is a, certainly a very different kind of family-friendly movie from the, the stuff that's being released in the cinemas at the time and, and to, to this day. So I'm interested in what it's doing with Melies, because on one level, I guess it is nominally giving a truncated, uh, childlike version of history right. um, to kids who are probably not familiar with Melies, almost certainly not, and, and there is a certain, you know, uh, storytelling, um, telling of history going on that, that that has some nominal relationship to the real, but but that, that's not the audience that find this stuff really interesting. The stuff, the people that find it really interesting, are the people that already know the story. Yeah. So you know, in the sense that you know, it's not it's not that you know, even most people know the vague knowledge of Melies and what he did and who he is, um, and and the mystery as it unfolds in the film isn't that mysterious for anyone with even like a passing knowledge of film history so like so so you know i don't know if you know the answer to this eric if you do brilliant but this might be my impossible question of the week what, what, what is the what is the film sort of using that to tell because it's essentially retelling a simplified rom obviously romanticized version of a story we already know and yet there seems to be some massive pleasure in having it told to us this way yeah, I, well, I think that's really interesting. And obviously, the story, too, and this is what's so compelling about the film, is the story of the young boy, mm -hmm. which is a made-up made story and the loss of the 
father. And of course, there are millions of films like this. And one of the reasons why there are is that it's always so compelling, the story of the boy in search of the love that he's lost from his par parent. Uh, you know, it's sort of a Dickensian kind of a story as well. So I think it taps into all kinds of pleasures. And, you know, so there's a range of them here. And I think we should also say in part that it was based on a book that was incredibly su successful and a book that's really beautiful too. And so there was an audience for the book and I have a feeling, although I don't know this for sure, I have a feeling that the audience for the book was as much adults as kids because the book is so wonderful. And the book too deals with many of the same issues of loss and sadness and friendship and pa parenting. Um, so the book too is one of those great children's books that is possibly much more appealing to adults than it is to uh, kids. And I think the film has that same kind of a feel. And you can have a kind of a very much a, a, a film enthusiast's appeal for the film. That That is, you know, I, I'm kind of caught. The opening shot of the film is very much the opening shot of Citizen Kane's. It goes into the close-up of the boy in the clock. It's very much like going into the house in Citizen Kane. You know, so there's all these kinds of in-jokes that give a certain kind of pleasure to people who have seen films. Uh, there's just a pleasure to the familiarity of the story in some ways, not just the Melier story, but the story of a young boy who has lost his father. And then there's also, I think, some of the pleasures, too, of replicating a book that is really a beautiful object. Um, but I'm interested to hear, and I didn't know this, that the film was not that successful at the box office. And it somehow... So it might not have been a kind of film that coded well as a kid's film, a fa fa family film. It might not have, it, it, it lacks something from the get-go that the Harry Potter films, let's say, have. Um, and it might be interesting to figure out what that is. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think in terms of the pleasures of the film. Yeah, I wasn't too familiar with the the sort of uh, relationship between the critical and the commercial um, reception of the of the film. I'm just trying to think a little bit on on yeah, what the film sort of does with Melia is. I mean, I think for me, the pleasures of uh, when I was rewatching the film, um, and, and yeah, same as you, Eric. I hadn't seen it since since it come out. I think I might have caught odd little bits on uh, sure. on TV and so forth, yeah. but but certainly hadn't seen the the kind of whole thing. I think yeah, I mean. It, for me, it, it part of the pleasure was about discovery in lots and lots of in lots and lots of ways, and and the opening shot that you describe when you have that kind of swooping digitally assisted camera that goes into the station along the platforms up into the clock face. Um, that as again as, as Alex said is quite explicit in its artificiality. Yeah. Um, and I think before that though, you hear the sound even when the even when the sort of company logo and, and everything, and and you get the the high angle shot of uh, the Champs Elysees and the Arc de Triomphe. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of matched to the sounds of trains and then clocks and you have the interior of a clock that then fades away and we see the Champs Elysees with the roads coming yeah. off of it and the idea that, that the space itself is sort of replicating a the city the city runs like clockwork yeah. um, and, also, and the similar thing is and the similar thing is true of the of the station you know you have people's roles and and I'd forgotten all the little intricate relationships between little characters and and um frisons between two characters uh Francis de la Tour and um uh, Richard Griffiths, yeah. who are sort of uh, having these, this this uh, this moment, and then you've got Emily Morton as character Lizette uh, and Sasha Baron Cohen's um, 
uh, inspector. So all these little little relationships, and and then obviously the two children as well. Um, but but for me, part of the pleasure of of how the film uses Melies and and how the, how the film uses cinema is that it it plays with cinema and knowledge. And and the best thing about cinema in the film is that it's information that can be passed on to people. So you have characters, you have Hugo passing on, you know, let's go and have an adventure, and they go to the cinema and watch a, a Harold Lloyd movie. Yeah. And, um, um, and then characters talk about other characters and the legendary status and, and uh, of Melies, and then you find out that um, uh, Helen McCrory's character Jehan, who's part of the, the sort of um, Melies uh, film history and his wife and stuff, is um, was an actress. And so this, yeah. I, I what I really liked was how cinema connected up the relationships between lots and lots of characters, and that we have cinema as this kind of discovery that is framed by these broader sort of yeah discourses of references and intertextuality and cinephilia and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but films themselves have the ability to enrapture people and people learn about movies and rediscover movies. And ultimately, Melies sits at the top of that because the whole film is really about Melies trying to recapture and, you know, not be ashamed of his his own legacy. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of found the film enshrouded with all of this, this, this um, sort of cinephilia, but actually what I really liked was how it, it sort of connected up lots and lots of characters and the pleasure that other characters have in, in telling other people about their love of movies and bringing them into that culture, which I guess fits with, with exactly that sort of 1930s, um, the stuff that you talk about in your book, you know, the cinephilic yeah. um, subcultures and subcultures and the, the clubs. And, and obviously, um, you know, 20 years later, we get the French New Wave, which is, you know, so I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm sort of really interested in the way that the Melies is used, but how cinema, I guess, is used yeah. broadly. No, I really think that that's true. And first of all, I'm, I, I'm always just so impressed with any film that, any current film that looks at old films. And so any film now that takes a loving look at silent film is, I think, a wonderful thing. And I don't know if your students are the same way. My students are great, but for them, film history starts with The Matrix or something, you know. And so <laughs> getting them to watch a film from the 40s is tough. So any film that has such a loving view of films from the 1890s is, to me, a wonderful thing. And any film that shows an audience just roaring in laughter and Harold Lloyd hanging from a clock, that's a wonderful thing and is kind, kind, kind of a great way of pr producing a, a, a kind of historical sense of what the cinema does. And in that mm -hmm. sense, it shows that Scorsese is really very much a throwback to the filmmakers of the 50s and, and 60s who grew up with that kind, kind of thing. And so uh, I think that a film that preserves that kind of memory of film and that uh, concentrates so much on people watching films is just a great thing, and I and I too was struck by you know you mentioned the train station and the clock. The film is so smart, and the book is smart too. And clocks are such a wonderful metaphor for films because the mechanics of both seem so similar. You know the ways they work on intermittent motion and moving. Uh, so uh, I think the film is smart and so many ways, but I just kind of love this child's eye view of film. And I should say, you know, I hadn't read the book, uh, but I took a look at it because, as you know, I'm the ideal podcast guest. So I did my homework here. And, uh, <laughs> I read the book. Excellent. and in the book, it's the girl who's the film enthusiast uh, and takes him to see the Harold Lloyd film. And so I thought it was interesting that in the film, Scorsese makes that a very male thing. And I think that's one of the, you know, 
one of the issues one might take mm-hmm. with the film is that it's very much Scorsese's view of things. And so uh, it buys into this sense of cinephilia as a male thing, uh, which is how it's often depicted. And in the book, it's the girl who drags him. So, you know, this is all by way of say, saying, though, that I too feel the same way, that a film that even attempts to do film history and kind of gets it right is a terrific thing. And of course, we all understand the film has to do take all kinds of liberties with narrative and dramatic action and that kind of thing. But the broad contours of the film history are pretty good. Hi, everybody. Just pausing the podcast here for a second to remind you of our upcoming listener choice episode themed around the idea of the alternative present. This is inspired by Watchmen, which is, of course, set in an alternative um, history. Um, and we're looking for you to provide your favourite example of, of an alternative world um, set in, in a sort of, you know, um, a different parallel universe. And the rules are, if you can remember, um, no alternative worlds and no what-if worlds. So no um, Aussies, no Narnias, um, and no um, It's a Wonderful Lives. Um, we want a film set entirely within a fictional world like our own with a certain difference, an alternative present. Um, suggestions are coming in um, thick and fast, and we'd love to feature as many on the next uh, episode of the podcast. So do keep them coming in through Twitter, uh, Instagram, Reddit, and of course via email. And the way to do that um, is to use our handle, uh, fan and in research, F A N A N I M research. And if you're emailing us at gmail.com. You can find our handle on all the other social media outputs and we'd be delighted to talk to you on there. People are already and the conversations are getting um, heated. Um, Where does the line draw? Who knows? And we'll talk about it all next week's show. Um, But for now, let's just get back to um, listening to us um, discuss Hugo with Eric Smoodin. And I think Chris is there as well. Mm -hmm. Well, The the relationship that you just set up between clocks and cinema, because actually there's one scene where he doesn't, when he's explaining how he built his first camera is that he used bits left over from the kind of uh, auto, uh, automaton that, that obviously has this relationship with um, kind of clocks. And, and that's part of the reason why him and his dad, who I'd, I'd also forgotten that Jude Law was in it for three minutes. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, of course they can fix the automaton because they're clockmakers and, and stuff. So yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess the, the paradox then is, is how digital the film is because a lot of it is about the mechanics of early, obviously early cinema and, and the, and the uh, intricacies of making a camera and obviously the automaton itself. Uh, and yet large proportions of the film, um, aside from a, a bit of model work, I think with the with the, the train actually crashing into the station, which is a nice sort of um, reiteration of the, the as you said that the Lumiere's the Lumiere's film. But a lot of the film is obviously so digital. You know, we, as I mentioned before, we have this sort of virtual backlot um, where you have these big, large green screens, and essentially the digital fills the world. And so there's something there's a, there's a sort of productive, nice, I don't know, rich tension between yeah these these new technologies being able to tell the story of the old um and yeah and and also but that also not being a problem like i i i enjoyed that the film was doing lots and lots of things with its visual effects um whilst using those visual effects those convincing computer graphics to be able to gesture back um to early forms of illusion you know the fact that we get to see lots of melies's movies uh, and and the artificiality of it and the the sets of them and and all these sorts of things i thought the kind of evocation of uh trip to the moon and and stuff like that i thought was 
yeah, it was, was no, terrific. I, um, and I think, you know, and I haven't read it anything recently about this. I think there are things that Melies did in his films that we're still not completely sure how he did them. You know, we have a sense, not completely no. sure. And I have a feeling right now it's very easy to do this kind, kind, kind of stuff. So in some ways the film is also, um, you know, a tribute to how hard it was to do this, even though now it's relatively mm-hmm. simple too. And so I, I, I kind of like that too, that, 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 it, that the film was such a digital uh, masterwork in some ways that it can only now replicate what Melies was doing by hand and in ways that we can't always be completely sure. Well, how do you make that head, you know? So I, I, I think it's in some ways uh, a tribute to just how hard and labor intensive all the things were that Melies did. Um, I should say too, just as a sideline, uh, in addition to reconstructing Paris, I think the film did a really good job of reconstructing the studio Melies built, which was a marvel as well, this glass studio, uh, which was just this modern marvel too. And we tend to think of Melies as being, you know, sort of uh, uh, stuck in this older French theatrical tradition of magic. But he was really also kind of a visionary in terms of how to construct a studio for making films. And that studio becomes something of a model, its use of glass, its use of light. And in that way, he's kind of, uh, you know, this um, this uh, early sign of new kinds of urban design, too, in terms of how you construct a built environment. I'm, I'm glad you just finished that sentence with the word design, Eric, because I was about to ask about sort of, I think part of um, the, the, the sort of fantasy... Uh, I don't know lexicon going on in the movie is this this pleasure in in design in ornateness and yeah. things fitting together like clockwork or indeed through clockwork um, mm-hmm. and actually if you if you think about what is you know we keep using words like romanticized and fantasized vision of Paris the main thing that's romanticized about it is this idea of a you know in, embedded in that first sort of first opening sequence of of a community fitting together somehow and everyone you know there's that line in the movie that everyone has a role um and if everyone can just sort of do their role and it'll all fit together and there's some you know there's something you know there's an interesting political discussion to be had there because i think there's there's some you know obviously obvious problems with that um but uh but certainly what the fact the fantasy that the film indulges in is a pleasure in in design in ornateness in, in 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 a world which runs like clockwork um, and I think perhaps there's a there's a folding together of the sort of narrative concerns of that with the pleasure it asks us asks us to take in cinema because actually I wonder if to try and answer my own impossible question earlier I wonder if what it's doing with Melies is offering us a vision of cinema that is less complicated than it actually is and that allows us to have a more sort of heightened imagined relationship with it i'm reminded um by i mean uh, i'm reminded by a theorist uh, melanie klein a psychoanalyst uh, who mm-hmm. writes a lot about fantasy and she talks about a term called the sort of the internal object which is basically like you know our, our way of of coping with universalities and it's basically you know it's, it's every every object in every person in our world is matched up against an internal fantasy that we've constructed so 
um, you know, a mother is just is both a real person and an imagined concept that these, the real person is imagined against, much in the same way that a pen is a real pen and an imagined thing that a pen should be, uh, you know, a pen that works properly, a pen that writes all the time. A yeah. podcast is, is, a, is a thing that both we can imagine works all the time and, and is always scintillating and fascinating to listen to. <laughs> Um, and also, agreed, agreed. And, and luckily, this one is so. You know, um, in yeah. that case, it matches the, um, the 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 imagined object. But this idea of sort of cinema is operating like that. That cinema, you know, what the debates we have over cinema. Cinema is real. Cinema is not real. Cinema is fantasy. Cinema, cinema is all these things. It's none of these things. It's just a big complicated machine that sort of works and sort of doesn't work, and it's kind of good and it's kind of bad. Um, and it's all messy and complicated, but this offers us a version of cinema, an imagined, a way of reconnecting with a certain childlike, romanticized, fantastical, imagined object of cinema. So almost Méliès represents cinema, he, the, and the way he treats him represents the way the film re, uh, treats cinema, or asks us to treat cinema, at least for an hour and a half. Yeah, I think that's true, and, and in that way, the film was also probably really conventional. This is how the yeah. cinema shown in these kind kinds of films and you know uh and it shows how under the sign of cinema the boy is able to reconcile with the memory of his dad the old man can come back to the place he should have had you know all all along uh that the cinema unites us um and of course paris is a big weird messy violent place at this time and the cinema does nothing of the kind but it is kind of this and this goes along with the fantasy view of paris at this time that the cinema is that which unites us all it makes us all laugh at the same thing so yeah in that sense i really think the film is incredibly con conventional but probably in really comforting ways in the way it presents the cinema as this wonderful thing that brings us all together. Um, and, and probably, you know, and in some ways it's nice because that probably is the memory of Scorsese's ch childhood too. Uh, I, I, I don't doubt. And probably I think a lot of us who became obsessed with film felt the same thing about going to, to the movies when we were kids. You know, it was a place where tension left. It was a place of surprise, laughter, uh, so I, I think the film might speak deeply to all of us, to many of us who have a similar memory of film and a similar wish for film to do that. Mm, I think. Well, I think the the idea you mentioned universality and the um, yeah, I, I think it, on the one hand it goes back to this this issue of film as as pleasure and an adventure and certainly filtered through the eyes of yeah. of, of children. But at the same time. And, and Alex mentioned the sort of political stakes of it. There's a kind of class issue simply because of the juxtaposition between Hugo at the start of the film and Hugo at the end of the film, yeah. who is decked out in essentially a, um, a tuxedo performing magic tricks uh, at what looks like a, you know, a very high-end party. Yeah. Um, he goes to the kind of the retrospective film academy showing of Melies's movies that they've rediscovered. And so I haven't, I haven't thought about this other than there's something... There's something about yeah, cinema is is a universal experience, but actually, some people are living in the walls of a and the clock faces of a of a train station, and other people right. go to the cinema and in a cafe. And I, you know, I I I don't mean this as a critique of the film, but there's a real conservative yeah. use of cinema uh, along yeah. those those same lines, and in fact, 
when the Germans come into France in World War II, and one of the first things they do, of course, is take over the film industry. And they use yeah. the cinema in the same way, that the cinema will be that which unites all of Europe under Nazi authority, under a benign Nazi authority. So in fact, the cinema as this great unifying force is something that appeals to us all, but also uh, can be used in very conservative, regressive ways to try to, to get us not to think about real relations in the world. Well, I suppose that's fantasy then. That, so that, well, that leads me nicely to, I'm not going to give an impossible question. I was just, I was just thinking now of, of yeah, that, what, what role does then fantasy play in, in, in yeah. this then? And, and, yeah. and obviously the film presents a particular figure, as you said at the start, Alex, that, that he is, he is, he, you know, he's the, he's the father, surrogate father of Hugo and he's the father of fantasy and he's the, you know, I, I, so I'm interested in what the film does with regards to Melies' position as a fantasist. Um, but yeah, I'll, I will, I will leave it to you. Well, no, I think that that's completely true. And I think, you know, and this is a film I like a whole lot, but there's probably an incredibly conservative reading of the film that would make great sense to us too. And also how the policeman is redeemed by the end of the film. You know, there are all these things that go on in the film that, of course, a film has to do. But I don't doubt there's a, there's an incredibly conservative reading of the film. And as you said, the triumph of the film at the end is that the little boy becomes a bourgeois, you know, and he's going to be fine and, he, and he's in a tux and he's acknowledged in front of the crowd. And, he, and uh, so yeah. I have a feeling that you could do that kind of a reading of the film that, um, that you know, wouldn't be as generous as some others might might be. Uh, and the triumph of, of Melies is interesting as as well, and it does kind of follow the historical record a little bit. He is uh, discarded, he is rediscovered, so there is something to that, but Melies as the force that brings the boy up to the middle class, that generates joy. You know, I, I, I think we could uh, do a reading of the film that might, you know, not be a generous one, but that would be a justified one. Mm. I certainly think that applies to the fantasy storytelling. As I said, I think I think that, you know the fantasy indulges both in terms of its relationship to the cinema and relationship to just sort of the, the, the plot mechanics. Are I, I use the word mechanics pun, apparently pun intended, but I didn't intend. Um, uh, you know, it is it, it, it is exactly it, it it feeds into very sort of yeah um, conservative discourse. I wonder yeah. try to try and you know not not uh, bring us onto a downer. Um, <laughs> Because I think that is important, and I'm glad we're talking about it. But I also think to flip back to the sort of animation side of this podcast, I think the visuals are perhaps where things get messy and complicated and more fun. Because I think what if we both think about what the film does with with CGI, but also we haven't mentioned the fact that this was a prominent 3D release at the time, and what it does with old cinema, sort of the sort of fusion of different, the old and the new, the the, the you know the progress, you know the supposed pro progressive cinema versus what it celebrates in terms of the old. There's something interestingly messy going on there. Um, and I think what, you know, the, a fi you know, if we put it in its in this, you know, if we put Hugo in its historical context now, when you have a figure like Martin Scorsese, who's beloved by the sort of, you know, conservative cinephiles that people like Thomas Elsasser and Jason Spurb um, talk about in their work, you know, the sort of, you know, uh, who are at the same time before Scorsese and people like him start making movies in 3D, 
absolutely, you know, um, down on the technology as this sort of, you know, um, working class entertainment for people who don't really love cinema the way they should. Um, and then to have someone like, I think that's where we might be able to find some more interesting or more progressive uh, politics going on. But it's probably at the level of the visuals and the technology and, and the spectacle yeah. going on, not at the level of the narrative. It's interesting. I had forgotten that the film was 3D. Yeah. And of course, in 2010, 3D seemed to be the future of cinema. Mm. And now, of course, it's the dustbin, right? Uh, and 3D films are not being made. So in some ways, the film had less of a sh shelf life than, than Amelier's film. <clears throat> um, and I had completely for forgotten. And of course, when I saw the film, <clears throat> excuse me, the other night, I saw it on my crystal clear television screen which gave this incredible image and 3d isn't really required but you're absolutely right when i saw, saw the film the first time now i remember it being a 3d film which added to the trains co coming at, mm -hmm. at that kind of kind of thing so in that sense the film is kind of a relic of a moment in film history that seemed to be the future at at the time and now is the distant past well, I hadn't kind of thought about that, the, the sort of dual historical contexts that are really important for understanding the film. On the one hand, you have the birth of cinema, 1890s onwards, and the um, sort of loving, nostalgic treatment of uh, a range of Melies' movies that are that are yeah pioneering these kinds of trick effects, Trip to the Moon. Um, I remember, you know, my first year... Uh, silent cinema courses, looking at Vanishing Lady and Man with the Rubber Head and all these kinds of wonderful movies that that use a language of transformation and expressivity and, and exactly the kinds of, of, of kind of effects that animation would go on to, um, yeah, I guess, formalise yeah. in, in lots of ways. Um, but the other context, exactly as Alex is saying, the sort of 2010, 2011, the sort of post-Avatar, what's the digital doing? What should it do? What should it not do? Um, we've already had experiments and I think we've, we've spoken, you know, across various episodes about different versions of CGI from the computer animated feature film to um, these kinds of virtual backlot films like Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow mm -hmm. and, and uh, Sin City and, and suddenly a more expressive treatment of, of digital technology. Um, and yeah, you're right, the kind of expressive, um, I think... Um, I think, I think it's, it's, a, it's a piece by Owen Weech, a book on expressive spaces in three, digital 3D that sort of talks about these, the movement across the screen space and a kind of hyper-haptic visuality, which I think this film uses. Hugo is a really interesting film then, but both, yeah, that both looks back to the birth of cinema, can be very much anchored to a 2009, 2010, 2011 period of, of 3D. It's also the same year as, as um, Spielberg and, and Peter Jackson's uh, Ventures of Tintin adaptation. So another sort of what CGI doing, what could it do? How can it manipulate comic book space in that sense? Um, so it's, yeah, it's a really, it sort of uses, yeah, it's more than just using new technology to depict the old. It's sort of, on this pivot point of okay so uh, it's about forms of cinematic illusion and the, the labor of certain kinds of things and yeah i hadn't really thought about the display of illusionistic spaces and what that yeah that 3d certainly lends it, it updates exactly that trepidation and, and anxiety and, and pleasure and and stuff that those audiences in the 30s when they see these this movie or um 
that when they see uh, the Lumiere's film and they jump out of the way, this apocryphal tale, the train comes into the station, all that sorts of things. It's sort of doing that, but with 3D. So when you have that opening shot of the film that goes in and you have stuff protruding out, you're sort of, Scorsese's replicating exactly that kind of um, experience, but ex- fully exploiting 3D, which is, yeah, which is obviously very much of that period. But as you say, Eric, is now a, is now a, a, a relic. So this film is, is an, I don't know what that, I don't know what that means, but it's a, it's certainly. Uh, perhaps, uh, so, you know, and I think you had mentioned, uh, one of you mentioned just a moment ago about, you know, the cinema of attractions. And I think yeah. this course, very much trying to replicate that. The, the sensation we had uh, that people seem to have had uh, films in the pre-1910 per- period, where it's not so much the story, it's simply the the shock of what they're see- seeing and the juxtaposition of images, that kind of thing. And I think that Scorsese is trying to replicate that, which is what in part makes this a smart film, that he is trying to, in a modern way, replicate what it must have been like to go to the movies in 1905, 1910, at the time when Melier's films were being seen. And I think that's a really interesting kind of a thing to try to do in, in, in a film, even as you're doing so with all of the modern technologies of CGI and, three, and, and 3D, uh, which now, as you said, seem kind of quaint. So uh, the film is both interesting in its evocation of history it's inter- but it's, and it's also interesting now as a moment in film history that may have been far briefer than Melier's career in some ways. But it's also, I mean, 3D is a really interesting technology in that it's, um, it almost has a sort of, uh, it, it has a sort of ambivalent quality with cinephilia in the, as I say, like traditional mm-hmm. cinephiles hated the thing for, and like were partially responsible yeah. for its downfall in the sort of, you know, persistent yeah. campaign against 3D. And with, you know, with some good reasons, because, um, yeah. you know, well, they're, they're well advertised. There's not much point going over them. But but at the same time, in many ways, um, 3D does to cinema um, what we've always wanted, like uh, certainly, you know, cinephiles have always wanted cinema to be, in that um, 3D, mm-hmm. uh, for a very brief window, meant that the auditorium was all. It was where you saw the film in its proper form. And, you know, I mean, we all think we can think that anyway. But like, you know, if we associate cinephilia with the cinema, which, you know, your work certainly does, Eric. I mean, partially by its its time period, but but also, you know, by by your interests, you know, this site specific love of not just the thing on the screen, but the room that surrounds it. You know, 3D yeah. is about saving that room and and kind of shooting it. You know, almost literally. You know, with a, with an injection of, of of spectacle and power and and magic and arresting quality. Um. So, it, in one level, yeah. we should love 3D. It's sort of doing everything we've always yeah. said cinema does. Um. It's site specific. Yeah. It's visually arresting. Um. It can't be looked away from. Um. It, it almost gives you a headache. It's so powerful. And then you have to go out and spend, you know, far too much money coming back in to see it again, which is what cinephiles have been doing for, you know, hundreds of years. So, you know, we should love the thing. So in a way, the, the, again, back to the sort of Melies figure as embodiment of, of cinema and all its contradictions. I'm interested in that, you know, quite a lot of the story is actually about finding his movies um, and and, yeah. reef and the, the idea that what makes cinema particularly great is that it's scarce 
and hard to access. Mm-hmm. And and there's mm-hmm. something pleasurable about that that scarcity. So there's there's also that going on. I don't know how closely that matches with the real life figure. I don't know about the status of access to his movies in the 30s but certainly in the film you can't really get any of them right there's like one that remains yeah and the and the history here is a little little bit sketchy but i don't but his films were around and in part because they were global commodities so they were just in various places and i think he had kept some so when he's rediscovered around 1925 or so by the film historian his films are available um and so the where the film ends and this is just this is getting off your point which i wouldn't mind getting back back to in just a bit the film ends in 1931 at the um, showing of his films in paris but it actually takes place in 1929 uh at a concert hall in paris and in fact they show a series of about uh, 10 of his films and they also show and this is so interesting the demille film the cheat which was this huge success in Paris in 1915. Uh, so it's a very mixed bill of films at the gala for him in 1929. So his films had never completely vanished. And I think he had kept some. So it wasn't quite the job it seems to be in the film where they think that only one of his films has still existed. They have to pour through archives all, all over the world. Uh, his films were more available, I believe, than the film would make it seem. So we don't have quite this burden of trying to find that which has not been found. I don't think there had been any sources said that he had died in the war, you know. So in some ways, the history is really strange here. Um, and I'm not sure why they move it to 1931 as opposed to 1929 when the gala was actually held. But, um, I, I, but, Getting back to the point you made about 3D and cinephilia, I think that's really interesting. I think that 3, 3D has occupied this very difficult space but in just what cinema ought to do. And, you know, there were the halting experiments in the 50s and then it comes back. And somehow 3D has never quite, even though it seems to be the fulfillment of the complete immersion of cinematic space, it never has quite seemed that way to the people who love films the most. So it's always got this interesting place. And I should say as well, I think, and I might be a bit out of my depth here, I think that Scorsese is one of the first filmmakers to make an, to make a digital commercial film. Isn't Gangs of New York uh, a digital film? And it's one of the first to be released in that way. I think that's the case. So in some ways, Scorsese, as much as he loves film, is very much one of the avatars of the death of film in some ways, because because of Gangs of New York and other films, mm. we have movies not being made on film. We have then the decline of the projectionist as a position, as a position of expertise. We have a complete change in how we it, in how we imagine films. And I know that there are lots of cinephiles who you know reject the digital experience in some ways because it's not the same as seeing a movie on film. Yeah, quite. And it's, so, so it's inter- and and he's you know obviously recently with um with the Irishman he's now moving on to sort of you know post auditorium streaming films. So um, oh yeah, so, yeah. So the, yeah. the story yeah. keeps going, and it's interesting that one yeah. of therefore the fantastical additions to the Melies story is to make his films harder to get at in the movie. I thought that was the case. I'm glad yeah. you confirmed that because I thought that was the case watching it. 
Um, but yeah. rather than look it up myself, I thought I'd leave um, our esteemed guests to, to, to correct me on it. So yeah, yeah absolutely. That's great. Yeah. So really, yeah. So part of the story it's telling of Sinner is, is this imagined um, preciousness that um, it almost sort of brings yeah. to mind sort of, you know, the, the Walter Benjamin aura, erratic kind of quality of, of that sort of perpetually being uh, uh, dealt with, which is, you know, um, and, and, you know, and to link it with sort of ideas of class, this, you know, the, the art when it's at its most democratic is, is, is that it's easy to get at. Um, and yet part of being a cinephile is to treasure not getting at cinema um, as quickly and easily as possible. And there's something potentially wrong with doing that. Why, you know, watching on our phone, on your commute, um, how dare you, you know, you should, you know, you should fork out gargantuan amounts of money and, and, and time to, to travel to the cinema. You know, this is true. In fact, when I was getting into film and I was a grad student, even an undergrad, and I was friends with some guys, with some guys who, and we all know guys like this, and it typically is a guy thing, uh, the measure of their cinephilia was how far they would go to see a film. And if they would travel 400 miles to see a Douglas Sirk film that had never been shown, that was really impressive, you know. And so that was kind, kind of how we measured things. It wasn't so so much what you had seen, but the sacrifice you would make to see it. And I think we kind of lost that a bit. And that's a good thing. You shouldn't have to get in a drive 400 miles to see a Douglas Sirk film. Yes. But but that was kind of what cinephilia was like at the time, the extreme measures you would take to see a film. And now, you know, it's great, but it's easy as well. I, I mean, I don't have, in terms of my, my notes, I had... I mean, one one thing I was thinking about is the I was trying to get my think think way through the automaton as as oh, yeah. the, cent- the centerpiece and and the various because at the very very end of the movie where Melies is now rediscovered he is he's back into a kind of certain kind of cinephilic circle he is he has that exhibition at the film academy of his work he is uh, applauded on stage um, he talks about being fixed you know he talks about being um, somebody yeah. who was broken and then is now in you know in now works again and obviously that's a nice parallel to, to two characters actually on the one hand Sasha Baron Cohen's character who says in the very very end who obviously walks with him and there's also there's something about his his role in the war as well so I, I quite yeah. like that he's got a he's got a really interesting he's got a really interesting yeah. backstory but he says something like I'm now fully functioning adult yeah. or man or human being or something um yeah. and then obviously the automaton which is the whole uh, fulcrum of the story it's it's Hugo's relationship with his um, three-minute Jude Law father, um, and <laughs> the aim to try and get it fixed, and 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 a, a quick little shout out to to the automaton. There's lots of writing on animation from. I mean, yeah. Alan Chol- Alan Cholodenko has a, a good article called "Speculations on the Animatic Automaton," um, yeah. which is you know is very difficult again to find. Um, work on animation that doesn't it seems like the automaton and automation is is a defining technology in the way that it it gets into certain kinds of debates around reanimation um, invention uh, all these sorts of debates around what animation is the illusion of life um, is exactly seem or seems to be knotted up with definitions of automaton and 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 so it seems obviously the the fact that this automaton draws an image of of a trip to the moon, I just thought was a really beautiful. That's probably my favourite sequence in the film. There, where he thinks. I, totally he, oh, I loved it. It's my understanding that I don't think that Melies was dealing with 
an automaton or automata, I think his, his stage act, of course, and he was a magician, was based on fake illusion, of course, as you would imagine in stage acts. And we see some of those in the film, the making the woman float, that kind of thing. I think the automaton is an invention of the book and the guy who, who did the book. And the book is so great because the book, uh, and I just realized this as I was going through it the other night, the book is almost like an animated film too. It's like a flip book, uh, right. the way the pictures work. And um, the automaton there makes perfect sense. And there does seem to be a link between the automaton, animation, and just the way that images work on us. So I believe that's an invention of the book and not based on anything historically right. about Melies. Yeah, well, that, that phrasing, the way the images work on us, is, is that's really what the, the film is about, you know, the power, the power of illusion and the power of images. And, and um, yeah. I guess, yeah, from the, from the critical side, animation is, has this sort of, always has this vexed meaning that is very simply tied into to the automata. But, but as I said, yeah. there's lots of references. We get images of a flipbook. And in fact, that's one of the, the ways um, uh, Hugo's little notebook that has essentially the flipbook right. of the automata. When there's so many different ways in which image making technologies you have in the film and then of the film. So you have the film begins with this yeah digital uh, extravagant one take um that is rendered entirely in computer graphics and then we also have a hand-drawn flipbook and then we also see an automata drawing yeah. uh, an image from a silent movie yeah. that is itself a forebearer to trick animation technology so it's yeah. i i I, I liked the film there. I said it, but I, I thought it was, yeah, I think all of these, these different image making technologies that are knotted together. Um, yeah. I thought was, was kind of wonderful. Um, yeah. Well, I'll say it too. Now you, you emboldened me. I like the film too. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, but, uh, you know, uh, with, with a certain criticality um, yeah. and a podcaster film, but um, yeah, no, I am. Um, yeah. It is, it is lovely. It's a lovely film to watch. I totally, I totally agree. And uh, when I came back to it the other night, I wasn't, I wasn't quite expecting it to like it as much as I had as I did, but I really did. And I think that the animation in the film kind of is a problem with cinema writ large. It looks real. But, and that's the pleasure of film a lot of the time, and it's certainly the pleasure of animation, which looks so real, but we know it's not. And so the film was always playing on that with almost every shot. And so I think it really gets at the pleasure of film, the problems of film, the distinctions between film and the real and the way those two things merge. Mm. And I think that's really a great thing. And so I, I could imagine, you know, I, I don't watch films with this in mind, but this could also be a great, teaching film too. Yeah, agreed. You know, yeah, yeah. There are, I think I saw some shots in the film that were from Vertov's Man with Movie Camp. Yeah. Camp, late 1920s film. And of course, for all those Russians and for, formalists at that time, the cinema is great because it's a machine. Mm. And it's a machine that can do anything. And so if Scorsese is invoking that and sort of making a movie that's a machine, that's really interesting and really mm. kind of a smart way of invoking a different kind of film history and a smart way of talking about film. It's this, this vast machine. A smart way of talking about film is probably a good moment to start to wrap up um, <laughs> this, uh, this episode. Because um, we're going to do some ways about talk, talking about film. <laughs> um, 
Eric, uh, thank you so much. Does you, do you have any final thoughts on the movie? We haven't covered any particular favourite scenes or moments that you'd just love to mention um, before we wrap up. I, yes, if I could. The only thing that I would say is one of the uh, one of the first new cinemas built in Paris after World War II was built on the site of Melies's theatre, which had been the Houdin theatre theater that Melies had bought. And it's christened in 1946. It's called the Melies Cinema. And the film that opens it, I think this is appropriate for the po- podcast and for the interest mm-hmm. we all have. The film that opens it is The Wizard of Oz. Oh. Terrific. And there's and there's the Wizard of Oz reference for the week. I was worried then. Um, <laughs> terrific. Oh, wow. What an interesting what an interesting little bit. That's great. That's great. Uh, my my yeah. favorite little moment of the movie I just wanted to mention, and it actually links to what we were just saying there, is the moment they sort of recreate some of the sort of tableaus that, that Melee has always sort of finished his yeah. movies on in live action. And there's some, like, in well, they were in live action anyway, but but in sort of in with with new actors and all this kind of stuff and there's something you know yeah. um really wonderful about those moments that that i think fit into lots of things we were saying so i don't need to say anything more yeah. than that chris any final thoughts yeah i mean i i think my yeah my favorite little bit is 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 either the the um opening uh first couple of minutes with the superimposition and then the, the shot i mean i'm also really struck and i've used this in in classes as well the the final the final bit where he's he's on stage talking to hugo talking to the crowd but talking to hugo and then he says uh come and dream with me opens out his arms and then takes a step back puts on he i think he puts a um a cigarette or a pipe or something in his mouth puts his hat on and then the film takes away ben kingsley and, and they sort of superimpose ben kingsley's performance onto the real Melies, and you have that blurring of 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 you know temporalities or you have that kind of um issue of performance because i mean i haven't really talked about ben kingsley but i thought he was yeah he was great in the film and 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 yeah it was very much and very much melee but i really like that final part where he's opening out his body to the audience and talking about his life and 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 then says yeah then says come dream with me and then you have a it's like a two second flip where he becomes part of the film and we're, we're now into you know real film history so um yeah i could and, and also, you know, it's it's a cinephile's dream, really, all of the little references. So it's definitely one of the ones that deserves a, a rewatch. Um, but yeah, terrific, Eric. If um, people have had their appetites wet by some of the, the sort of discussions we've been having, um, where where can they find your book? Is it available and out and and ready to purchase in all good bookstores? Thank you so much for 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 the plug. It is available at all good online bookstores. I appreciate you guys giving me a chance to talk about it. Well, we appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and, and helping us unpack Hugo and um, what a wonderful discussion. I'm sure listeners will, will take a lot from it and, um, and learn a bit more about the movie. Uh, Chris, yes. uh, and is, I've got to do the admin. Yeah, I? I'll do the your, admin. We've tried this when I do the admin and I can't, yeah. I haven't learned. I, I've I haven't learned it in the way that you've learned it. So this is very much your. Okay. Let, let's see if we can do this in record time. Then. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you can find us at fantasy-animation.org, where you can access our archive of uh, podcasts, just like this one. Um, you can hear Eric's original interview with us back on the SCMS um, specials we did. Um, oh, so it almost feels like a lifetime ago now with, with all the changes that have been happening since, but um, about a year and a bit ago. Um, you can also find blog entries on, on topics um, that will no doubt cover some of the stuff we talked about here. 
Uh, Chris always wants to receive more blog entries. So if you are an aspiring academic practitioner, uh, animator, fan, if you um, are involved in any coordinated fan activity, if you just want to see if you'd like to write for us, get in contact and see what we can do. And as always, you can find us on um, Twitter at Fan Anim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. That's also our handle for Facebook, Instagram, and now Reddit, where there are some lively conversations going on right now. Take part in them. Uh, and don't forget our listener choice episode uh, next time, which will be uh, on a uh, uh, on a parallel universe, a parallel history um, film of your choice. We're going to love debating the semantics of that. But if you have any further suggestions for that, um, do email them at fananimresearch at gmail.com or just get in contact via social media. That has been us for another week. Um, Eric, once again, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and, and journeying with us to Paris. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Uh, and Chris, I'll see you and the listeners next time. Bye. <laughs>